and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with virologists, students and postdocs that belong to the American Society for Virology so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On November 12, 2021, we talked with Nora Herzog, a graduate student in the Holt, Moore, and Wilson labs at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Nora is in the microbiology and cell biology training programs and is currently investigating how early herpes virus 1 infection alters the biophysical properties of the nucleus to impact diffusion. All right, well, thanks uh, for speaking with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, okay, so um, I'm Nora. <laughs> I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. Um, I didn't have uh, any science education in my elementary school. Um, we had a engineer come and talk to us about physics during seventh grade. Um, and that was my first exposure to science. I didn't really have a true science class until I was in high school. Um, I didn't have a lot of opportunity to really explore science, but I was always very interested. And my parents always really encouraged me um, to think about things scientifically. We had this great book. I think it's kind of old, but it's, it's still one of like my favorite, one of my favorite books, which is like the way things work. And it's got like all these funny illustrations and cartoons about, you know, like how levers and pulleys work and things like that. Um, and I always just like loved building things like building with Legos and blocks and stuff like that growing up. Um, but I hadn't ever really had a biology course or anything um, about like life sciences until I was in high school. Um, and I was very lucky. I had a really incredible teacher my uh, freshman year of high school um, who was very funny and very relaxed and had absolutely no curriculum, I think. Um, but he would just start talking and we would just be like chatting and whatever our sub our subject matter landed on, he'd be like, OK, that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, so I remember we had like a very interesting discussion on opioids <laughs> Um, because there was like a meme circulating around about everyone trying to steal Oxycontin, which isn't that funny, of course, now um, that, you know, we're like past really understanding the opioid, opioid epidemic. Um, but we, we had like a lot of really, really intense conversations about biology and all these different contexts. Um, and I just became really fascinated with it. I wanted to be a nurse, but... Um, that didn't happen, <laughs> obviously. Right, and I guess then, um, how did you, when going into undergrad, you know, what did you study, and then how did you get into your sort of PhD? Um, so I uh, actually applied to nursing school um, during my undergrad, uh, for my undergrad, and I was accepted into nursing school, um, and I spent one semester. <laughs> at the nursing school at UW-Madison, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, and I did not like it. <laughs> I did not enjoy the subject matter. I wasn't really, um, I wasn't feeling challenged and I didn't really, I couldn't really see myself being a nurse. And I think that a, a big part of this though was that I had um, been accepted into this program 
for um, underrepresented minorities in science. Um, I'm a first generation college student and my family is also um, low income. So I was accepted to this program that introduced um, people like me to science and the different science careers. And as part of that, they paired us with a research um, person. And so I started doing virology research um, with Dr. Bill Sugden at the University of Wisconsin, and it changed my life. Um, I just couldn't, I, and, and I, I couldn't imagine not wanting to do something like that. Um, now it, it took me a little bit to figure out exactly what I did want, um, because I was very confused as to what, what higher education really was. I think, um, I don't, I didn't really understand research, what it meant to do research. Um, uh, the thing that was probably most surprising is finding out that a PhD is not in fact a teaching degree. Um, I thought it was a teaching degree for college. And I thought that until have, I had a conversation with Dr. Sugden about how I was like, Oh, I just don't want to take the MCAT. Why would I have to take the MCAT to do research? And he was like, well, why would you be taking the MCAT? And I was like, cause I have to be a doctor. And he was like, I'm not a doctor, <laughs> not that kind of doctor. <laughs> you can do a PhD and it's, it's a research degree. Um, and that was kind of when everything started to click that it was like possible to just do this, that I didn't have to, you know, deal with people <laughs> and people problems and um, medicine and cures, but I could actually just study how disease works. Um, and that was, that was like the big light bulb moment for me. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about that? So, um, you know, I think people sometimes, like you were saying, not being aware that research is even a, uh, a profession. I mean, I think a huge part of this is, um, outreach, mm -hmm. um, and specifically outreach with high schoolers. You know, I think um, there's a lot of a lot of high schoolers who are going into college, I think, especially from backgrounds like mine. Um, uh, I've noticed like a similarity in some ways between my experience and the experience of a lot of um, immigrant, uh, a lot of my friends who are immigrants, that their parents like understand what a medical doctor is and they understand that that is success. And that is something that is, you know, profitable and difficult, but like, that's kind of like the ultimate, the ultimate accomplishment. And I think even just having those conversations at, uh, at career days or even in the science classroom about like, you know, if you like science, what can you do in science and what do those different degrees mean? Um, because I, I definitely, you know, I, I didn't really get the full grasp of what, any of this meant until very, very recently. I would say some of some of the stuff that I didn't I'd like I didn't even know was possible until I was already in my PhD program. Um, but even just like introducing like, oh, with a you know bachelor's of science, you can work as a lab technician. And like this is what that looks like. This is the kind of things that you can do. Or, you know, you can work as a field as a, a field manager for a project. Or you can, you know, do all these different things that don't necessarily involve like having to be a doctor. Um, and I think also separating the difference between what it means to be a medical doctor and what it means to be a research doctor, and the ways that these two things are that like can sometimes be the same with like MD PhD programs and stuff like that. But I think really having that outreach in high school 
is probably the most valuable thing. Cause I think that's when we get in, a lot of us get instilled, like what, what does it mean to be successful? What does my path have to look like from here forward? Like there's an immense amount of pressure on high school juniors and seniors to figure out what they want to do with their lives. And to some degree, you know, you can get away from that a little bit in college and explore, but also because so much of STEM is so time intensive, you know, there's, there is this, there's this sense that you have to be doing it one way as soon as you get into college and to just have that understanding that it doesn't have to be like that. And that there is this fluidity in what you can do and what you don't have to do. Um, I think having that as young as possible is really, really valuable. And so I've actually become involved in several like high school and middle school outreach programs, like as a PhD student, trying to reach out to students who, like myself, didn't necessarily have the background from their family or, you know, large collection of people around them who knew what these things were and how this whole world of STEM works. Um, So I think it's it's incredibly important to start that in, in, in high school, though, I think. That's the, that's the key. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit then, like, how did you end up at your institution and in your PhD lab? Like what were kind of some of the things you were looking for in sort of the institution, but also in the individual lab? Um, so as far as, as far as institutionally, I mean, I think I really wanted somewhere that would give me a lot of freedom. Um, and not keep me boxed into one specific discipline. Um, So I was applying primarily to schools that had umbrella programs, like programs where you don't, you're not like applying for immunology or for, you know, microbiology or for neuroscience, but that you're applying to the program as a whole and they have these disciplines underneath, but you don't have to choose right away. Um, And I felt like that was really important because I really didn't, I've spent most of my life trying not to be pigeonholed into just one thing because I think I have many diverse interests um, and the idea of having to choose just one thing and just continue on that forever, um, I think is really was really claustrophobic to me. Um, And I think that like part of again, part of this process of like learning more about STEM is also learning that like what you do in your undergrad doesn't have any bearing really on what you're doing in your, in your PhD. You can go from, you know, in my case, a cancer immunology lab and end up in a, you know, molecular biophysics lab, which is kind of where I am now. And those, these are completely two different disciplines. Um, I had no experience going into where I am now and also knowing that, well, the techniques and strategies that I learned now are important, that's not necessarily going to have to be exactly what I do for my postdoc, which I would then carry into a faculty position if that's the track that I choose to go on. And I think that just knowing that as you move forward, you're not limited is also something that was really, really important to me. So I wanted a program that would really support me going forward without having to choose just just one thing. And NYU is incredibly collaborative, um, very open departments. Um, I'm currently co-mentored by three different PIs in um, two different departments. Um, so I'm, you know, half a microbiology student, half a cell biology student, and my labs kind of work at the intersection of like molecular virology and biophysics and cell biology. Um, and transitioning to that, I, I made this decision because I felt like 
I was gaining the maximum opportunity to learn um, by entering labs where I had disciplines where I was completely unfamiliar with them. Um, but at the same time, I've known ever since I was very young that I really wanted to do something with medicine and specifically something with virology. Um, as I'm sure many students have, have said, like reading Richard Preston's hot zone in like seventh grade, I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. This is so cool. Um, and so like, that was kind of my intro into science. But I, like I said, I didn't realize that I could do that without being a medical professional. So my intention at first was to become a nurse and be one of these people who works with either the WHO or um, MSF, you know, in hot zone areas, um, like working on disease outbreak. And um, I think, you know, going from going from that to realizing like what science, like what science actually looks like and what isn't, isn't possible. I never really lost track of, you know, the lure of virology, though I definitely have absolutely zero desire to work with BSL-4 pathogens uh, after realizing everything that it takes to, you know, get up in those suits and how long it is and, you know, just the, the slow process of research under those conditions. Again, much rather stick with my BSL-2, you know, and occasional BSL-3 pathogens than go into, you know, those super high containment facilities. Um, but all that being said, I knew that I wanted to do something with virology. And I think that, you know, this was the first chance that I had to really, really delve into um, virology as a researcher. Um, but it was also something that was very unfamiliar. Um, and so I was looking to maximize my learning opportunity and also to kind of prove to myself that, you know, I can learn something in depth and new at this stage in my life. And like that, that is a process that I will have to be comfortable with because for me, I think I would really like to see my future going into like the intersection of um, climate change and uh, viral evolution um, and ecology, which is a different field than what I'm in now. Um, and I think that just exercising that flexibility was really important to me, which is one of the reasons that I chose the labs that I did. And with the mentors that I have who are incredibly, incredibly supportive of independent work and have and have really let me craft my own my own proposals, my own methods and really say, like, this is why I think we should pursue this, you know, with gentle nudges to, like, help me, you know, steer back on track when what I'm saying doesn't make scientific sense. Um but they've been really, really supportive in terms of gathering, uh, just gathering a team to really help me become the best independent scientist that I can be. I think that's, that's really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually feel like having co-mentors is becoming more of a thing in a way. So I've actually noticed that there's at least at our institution, there's more students that actually have two people that are their mentors. So um, I've had, here, I haven't heard of three though. So you're, um, so I, uh, what is, what's that like actually? Cause it's, it's hard to, <laughs> enough to balance two co-mentors. So how does that work exactly? So um, I am, I do have a unique situation with three mentors. However, 
Um, I'm not the only person at NYU who has this. Um, and the other situations that I know where people have three mentors are similar to mine, where you have two mentors who kind of co-run their labs and they're collaborating with a third person. So my two virologists, um, they, my two virologist mentors, they collaborate with each other. They co-run their labs. We have joint lab meetings. Um, the research is shared. The mentorship is shared. Um, I am just the only officially co-mentored student. Um, and uh, that had to do with the places where I saw my project going and whose research um, really was valuable in building in building like the, the path to that project. Um, so I think that I think that's why I have two two additional virology mentors. Um, but I really think that the the collaboration between the two disciplines is super valuable because I get expertise from all different sides. Um, and people see things in such different ways. Um, it 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 is hard because there are sometimes gaps where you know some of my mentors may not know a specific thing. So if I and if I don't know that there is a problem here, then it's very difficult for me to be like, oh, I don't know this and nobody else knows that this is a problem. So how do I get help with that? Um, but I think having just like a lot of open communication between the four of us has been, has been difficult sometimes just because there are four of us and that's, you know, three very busy faculty member and myself as a graduate student. Um, but the more that we like practice, I guess, coming together and actually talking about the research and different directions and different perspectives, um, the better that it gets and the easier that it gets. And also, I am going to say as someone who really wanted very, very independent setting, um, I didn't want someone who was going to be hovering over my over my shoulder. I didn't want someone who was going to demand that I check in with them every week. And I know that's something that a lot of people really enjoy, especially having, you know, like the structure of weekly meetings. So this isn't to say that that's a bad thing in the slightest. I just knew that that's not what I wanted. Um, and I think that having multiple mentors who all have that kind of like hands off, like let the student be independent approach. Um, where sometimes I think if you just have one PI and that PI is a, you know, kind of hands-off mentor, you can fall through the cracks pretty easily. But I think by having three, there's always someone there, always someone who I can check in with if I'm having a problem. Um, and so I have not, like, I've actually heard from other people in, in my labs that they're having frustrations that I'm not because I have other people who I can go to. Um, and I think that in that way, the co-mentorship has been incredible because it's any, any deficit in one of my PIs is made up by the fact that I've got two others who maybe don't have those same, those same issues. And so I feel like no matter where I'm turning, I still have a strong team. Um, and of course you can never expect any PI or any person to be perfect. So there's always going to be, you know, small issues in communication or leadership style, anything where you might have conflicts, but having multiple people with even, even if they're like slightly different as opposed to majorly different styles in my case, um, is still really, really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So let's come to it then. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your research and I guess sort of like what is sort of the thesis in a way, your main thesis, and then also maybe like what are the types of experiments that you're using to actually um, explore that, that thesis? 
Okay. So I'm fairly early in my process. Um, I only just qualified um, very recently. (laughs) Um, And so uh, that's, this is, this is pretty new. Um, But my, what I'm generally working on is macromolecular crowding in the nucleus in the context of herpes simplex virus one infection. So um, what I study is basically how the biophysical properties, specifically um, diffusion in the nucleus at uh, the 40 nanometer scale um, changes during HSV1 infection, why that happens and what is driving that change. Um, So during HSV1 infection, we already know that there's massive remodeling of the nucleus. It's a DNA virus. It goes in, changes everything. Um, But most of the remodeling that has been documented is happening in late stages in infection. And I have found that we are seeing massive changes in diffusion, um, like on the level of fourfold changes in diffusion at early time points before the onset of viral DNA replication and the expression of late genes, um, which is not something that has been shown before. Um, and it's very exciting um, that we're seeing this change to this very fundamental property um, much earlier than we're seeing this remodeling that is well-documented that everybody knows happens. Um, and so what I'm trying to do right now is to elucidate the mechanism behind that change. Now, a huge, a huge part of, um, a huge part of this is tracking diffusion, uh, which traditionally is used. Um, we tr- traditionally would use microbiology techniques like microinjection, but that's very disruptive to the cell. So I'm actually working with a new technology or fairly new technology that was um, invented, I guess, by um, uh, Liam Holtz lab. Uh, called GEMS, which are genetically encoded multimeric nanoparticles. And what they basically are is we use an archaea, uh, an archaea protein, um, an encapsulin protein from pyrococcus furiosus um, that self-assembles. We uh, put it on a lentivirus connected to a fluorescent protein um, and a nuclear localization signal. We introduce it into the cell. Um, the particles are, uh, the particles are synthesized and then they, um, assemble, they self-assemble into these icosahedral particles in the nucleus and they fluoresce quite brightly. Um, and then what I do is I use tracking software, um, while I take images, movies mostly, and then I put them through tracking software and analyze their movements, um, mathematically. And that's how I get my, um, measurements. But of course this has, um, quite a lot of different complications, (laughs) including introducing the gems into different cell lines that are more um, favorable for virus infection. Um, And uh, just seeing about the different, the different intersections between the effects of the gems and the effects of my treatments. Uh, So that's been mostly, most, uh, mostly what I've been doing though. Of course, I'm also um, working um, on protein expression. Of course, I'm using a lot of Western blots. I'm doing some RT-qPCR to check for RNA expression. Um, But I think the vast majority of what I'm doing is imaging um, because not only am I doing uh, live cell imaging to track my gems, but I also use uh, immunofluorescence staining 
to look at expression of different proteins under different um, under different uh, under different conditions and their localization specifically. That's been very important. Is looking at localization of gems in comparison to viral proteins. Um, so a, a lot of what I do is imaging, but I do have some other more molecular techniques um, as well. And, and cloning. Can you talk so much a little fun. bit about. Um... I guess for HSV, when it's going to the nucleus, what does that actually look like? So what is sort of known about, maybe not so much about what you're starting to uncover, but just sort of like the canonical idea of what happens when HSV goes to the nucleus? So what are the early events? Is it like a single viral particle that goes there? Like Yes, usually. So what we see is we see the, um, we see the, I guess, like the engulfment of the um, capsid of the of the HSV one capsid it uh, it tra- it um, traverses across the cytoplasm and the uh, genome is injected into the nucleus um, and so during that during that process you start to see um, as the genome it, then this happens like this is almost immediate um, and so after the uh, genome is um, in is is in the nucleus you start immediately with this onset of uh, virus gene expression which then shuts down host transcription um and just causes these massive changes again to the nucleus both in terms of uh well so there has been quite a lot of literature on um changes in host chromatin um that are mediated by uh virus proteins but you also see this major change in the rna landscape as the uh uh, shutdown of host transcription and the onset of viral transcription so you just see like this incredible influx of new dna and new rna um along with the um degradation and halting of synthesis of host um you also see shutdown of like host uh the host immune response. Um, so there's, I mean, these are like classic, classic things that happen when we see, um, virus infection. But like I said, most of my work has really been focused on the biophysics of these changes, um, and how they might be, uh, influencing the cell from a biophysical standpoint. My question is sort of more, do you think that it is you're detecting changes now that basically were below the level of detection, or are you actually seeing them earlier in the life cycle than people have really looked? And if so, how early in the life cycle? Do you think it's response to the DNA itself or do you require transcription? Well, we've already, yeah, we've already discovered you need to have some base level of gene transcription. Um, This is dependent on gene transcription. We're seeing it fairly early, um, like somewhere between three and six hours post-infection. Um, with differences, it appears to be peaking at nine hours. So you have definitely the onset. And again, this is independent of viral D- virus DNA replication. Um, so this is mostly going to be um, with expression of immediate early and early genes. Um, and what we're working on now is trying to figure out when exactly temporally this is happening um, and what genes are being expressed uh, that are involved in this. And and what genes then are sufficient to create this change. So that's what the experiments that I'm working on now are um, trying to elucidate. But what we what we do know for sure is that somewhere between the entry and the onset of virus gene expression and virus DNA replication, something is happening that is fundamentally changing 
the biophysical properties of the nucleus in regards to diffusion. Um, and diffusion is often used as a proxy for molecular crowding. Um, so they have an inverse relationship, of course. So an increase in diffusion um, would mean a decrease in uh, a decrease in crowding, which makes sense when you think about it, because if you have less space, things are going to move around a whole lot less. Um, and so this this is this is really, really interesting because we do know that we see during HSV1 replicate or HSV1 infection, we do see an increase in acetylation of chromatin, which is an open, which is creating a more open form of chromatin, uh, which you would think might be causing an increase in crowding. Um, but we're not, we're not seeing, we're not seeing that. But again, the changes, the visible changes that have been um, documented with HSV-1 infection, and especially with chrome, with regards to chromatin are happening at um, later stages in infection than what I'm looking at. And so to really trying to elucidate exactly what is happening is very, very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess you're kind of early, but um, can you talk a little bit about, so what are your plans for the next sort of year, year or so? So, I mean, I think um, now, you know, sort of some meetings are starting to be in person, you know, so how, I guess maybe talk a little bit about other than in the lab, what else do you do as sort of a graduate student? So I, I mentioned already that I'm very involved in outreach. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is something that's incredibly important. Um, I know that I didn't have as much exposure to science um, as I really wish I would have uh, when I was younger. Um, again, my parents definitely like did their best, but like as two people who didn't have college degrees and didn't really have access to a lot of sci um, scientific thinking themselves, you know, this is like mostly like listening to NPR Science Friday <laughs> and like reading the way things work, um, you know, uh, stuff like that. So I think that outreach is, in, is incredibly important, as I've already said. And so I'm very involved in that. I have monthly events that um, I orchestrate with uh, uh, a school down in the Lower East Side of New York um, that specially caters to um, underperforming students from um, backgrounds that are traditionally underrepresented in higher education. Um, so I think this is a really good model because rather than taking students who are high achieving, it's taking students who are struggling and then trying to give them the resources that they need to succeed. Um, and we come in uh, a group of us uh, from NYU to teach them what what scientists look like um, and to start having like basic conversations on like how you create an how do you create an experiment? Like, how can we look at these different aspects of science in the world around us? We had a really great, a really excellent um, uh, lesson on the physics of flight and aerodynamics and we like just made paper airplanes with them but we're talking about the different forces that go involved with airplanes and you know they have i think at least they seem to be having a lot of fun and it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun for me as well and that's something that i care deeply about and have been involved with for the past couple of years um i'm also part of a mentorship program um, that uh, pairs uh, graduate students and postdocs with uh, students in high school who are interested in STEM and who are from underrepresented backgrounds. Um, and I am very involved in that as well. We have monthly academies where we like have like an in-depth discussion on one discipline in science. Um, and I've been involved in creating the microbiology academies for the past two years um, and just creating like 
some resources for like, how do you write a college essay? You know, what do, what do college applications look for? Like, how can you spin your resume, your CV to really reflect the things that you do um, and stuff like that. So th I spend a lot of my time doing outreach and mentorship. Um, but of course, I also go to scientific conferences. I'm hoping that I can go to the Biophysics Society uh, conference in February. Um, I did apply. I haven't quite heard back yet. Hopefully I, I will soon because they said early November. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm hoping I can go to the Biophysics Society conference. Um, there's a really excellent uh, herpes virus conference, the International Herpes Virus Workshop that was held virtually last year that I attended that was um, really excellent. I'm hoping I can go to that again this year and really get some specific feedback um, on the virus side of my uh, of my project. I think having those two separate experiences is going to be really, really valuable. So I definitely try and attend like around two conferences a year just to, you know, really expand my horizons. But my PIs are pretty, uh, pretty adamant, of course, as is natural that if you are going to a conference, you're going because you're presenting. Um, so I, I'm I'm hoping that I'll get to present it both, but we'll see. <laughs> Keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> Great. Um, and uh, I guess just to finish up, sort of, um, have do you have any idea of sort of the track that you want to follow later on? Are you interested in academics or are you sort of seeing other um, or pursuing other paths? Where do you want to go from here? I'm definitely interested in academics. Um, I think I would really, I would really like to work at a university, um, probably not one like NYU, um, or at least not one like the hospital, um, but somewhere where there's undergrads, I think I've, I've really enjoyed um, teaching and mentoring on an undergrad and um, like early college level. And so that's something that I would really like to continue. Um, I, of course, I'm made very nervous by the fact that, you know, we're graduating so many PhDs and, you know, there's not as many, there's not a whole lot of faculty positions open. So um, that's uh, a little nervous making. Um, but uh, I think that that's, that's really where I would like to go. I mean, I am, a, I'm fully a product of public education. And so I very much am an advocate for public education. And I had a really excellent um I had a really excellent university experience at public universities. So I think that, you know, for me, I'd really like to be at a public university where I can, you know, give back to the same environments that like really helped to produce, to produce me. But um, I don't, I, I have thought a little bit about like more, um, more NGO fieldwork kind of research. Um, there's some really interesting, interesting groups like EcoHealth and the Arctic Research um, Foundation that are doing really cool work with um, pathogens and climate change and, you know, increasing prevalence of disease vectors and things like that. Um, I think I, I could be happy in other places, but I think my, my number one goal is, is academia, <laughs> which I know is, is, is maybe not the most popular answer at the moment. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of people are really enjoying the paycheck that they see when you can look at an industry job and I do not blame them. <laughs> but I, I don't think that I would be happy in that, in that environment. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking with us this morning. It was great talking to you and uh, good luck on your research. And uh, we hope we hear from you um, as in the, I guess, in the summer for ASB. This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. 
You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers or at lmtv.podbean.com.